All right, 2 Samuel chapter 20. To give you a bit of context, um, David is probably anywhere between 25 and 35 years into his reign, so we are toward the latter half of his reign and maybe even the back end of his reign at this point. Um, David is back on the Jerusalem side of the Jordan River at this point. He's in the city of Gilgal, Judah. Uh, The tribe of Judah and some others have escorted him there to that city, pledging their loyalty to him as their king once again after the civil war uh, because of Absalom's uh, conspiracy. Uh, But when representatives of the other tribes found out that the tribe of Judah had kind of done this without waiting for them, um, they arrive at Gilgal later on, and, and, and they basically end up in a shouting match with the leaders from the tribe of Judah. I'm so thankful that we don't live in a country where that ever happens. I'm being sarcastic. <clears throat> While the men of Judah uh, ended up winning that argument, it, it highlighted, though, the deep divisions in the nation. Uh, was David really everyone's king, or did Judah get special treatment? And so, while the civil war started by Absalom is over and done with, um, another rebellion begins right here at Gilgal, and it divides the nation even further. So, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it says to us, And there happened to be there a man of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So, every man of Israel went up, fr- uh, went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah clave unto their king from Jordan even to Jerusalem. So, here we see that David faces now a new rebellion right after he gets done with the previous one. And it starts with this guy named Sheba. It says there happened to be there a man, so this is some representative from Benjamin who's there, um, whose name was Sheba, and it calls him a man of Belial. Uh, You ever really want to insult somebody? Call him, do that next time. You man of Belial. And they'll just look at you like, what are you talking about? It it literally means a, a person who's worthless, a uh, man of worthlessness. It was used for someone who was wicked. Um, this is, in fact, where Paul gets the phrase uh, children of disobedience from. It's kind of the same meaning. Uh, it's someone who is just doing their own thing. Uh, now, when we dis- describe someone who's wicked, certainly wicked people are, aren't worthless to God. Um, we were all wicked once, right? And we, as we learned this morning, God loves us. Uh, but the phrase here The reason they use the word worthless is because the phrase shows the waste of a life lived for self. That's the idea. It's like, this is it. This is all you're going to live for, you know? Well, that's just worthless. It's a waste. Um, It it shows how that that kind of life doesn't amount to anything when it's all done because it it didn't live for anything beyond itself. Um, My grandfather uh, passed away this Monday, went home to be with the Lord, and uh, my very first pastor went home to be with the Lord a few weeks ago. 
And, uh, you know, in, in the memorial for my, my past, my very first pastor yeah, yeah, uh, yesterday, I mean, tons of people talking about the impact that this person had in their life. And, and my guess is my grandfather's memorial will be similar. They were both uh, very strong believers, shared their faith often, and had great impacts upon people's lives. And so, um, that's the, the, this word is the opposite of that, you know. It's a life that doesn't have an impact because it just lived for self. And so that's why this phrase is used. This is a guy who's got his own ambitions, his own ideas. He doesn't care what God says. And, uh, and he's a Benjamite. And, and David has had problems with the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this doesn't let us know if he's one of those thousand men that came with Shimei because they seem to be very supportive of David or if he's one of the leaders that arrived later. I, I think that's probably it, but I don't know. Bible doesn't say. But either way, he's part of this argument uh, that was going on when, uh, w- when the men of Judah took it up a notch. You know, it mentions at the, the end of chapter 19, it says, um, uh, and the words of the men of Judah were fiercer, harsher than the words of the men of Israel. So as, as, as they're going at it, all of a sudden the, the tribe of Judah's leaders kind of take it up a notch. And when, when that happens, this guy says, I'm not having any of it. And so he takes a ram's horn. It says a trumpet here, but it's that, that ram's horn. And, and he says he blew it and he said, cries out, we have no part in David. Um, you remember earlier that the, in chapter 19 that the leaders of the 10 other tribes had argued, we have more of a claim to David than, than Judah does because the king belongs to everyone and you're just one tribe. Uh, well, Sheba basically say, is claiming here that David's leadership over all the tribes is a farce. You know, the only tribe that matters to David is Judah. So why should David matter to us? Why should David matter to us? He's not worthy of being followed. Neither do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse was a derogatory term that Saul used for King David. So remember Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. This is somebody who's had a grudge against David already, and now he's bringing up that old phrase that Saul used as a derogatory term, the son of Jesse. The idea is, who's Jesse? When, he, when they would call him a son of Jesse, it's like saying he's a son of nobody, you know? He's not important. He doesn't come from a, 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 you know, a noble line, a noble, noble family in Israel. What inheritance do we have in him? In other words, our lands might as well belong to Judah. There's no future for us if David's line becomes the kingly line. It'll all just become Judah someday. And so he says, every man to his tents. Reject David's leadership and go home. Show him that he's not your king. And this guy's speech worked. Because it says in verse 2 that every man, so every man of Israel went up uh, from after David. They, they, they withdrew their support, and they followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Um, that's how angry these other tribal leaders were at this point. Now, I don't think this means that all of a sudden they wanted him to be their king, uh, and I don't even know if they were ready to follow him in a rebellion yet, but they were willing to, to follow him away from David at this point. And so, he takes the lead in leaving, and they follow him and leave David alone as well. The only ones left were the men of Judah, and it says they clave to their king. They stuck close to uh, David uh, just in case as he's returning to Jerusalem, the other tribes uh, tried anything funny. And so it says they, they stuck close to him from Jordan even to Jerusalem. And so David, after having, remember the night he had to flee from Jerusalem, he finally makes his way back home, makes his way back to his palace, but it is not a triumphant return, is it? 
I mean, this is not the triumphant return that, that he had hoped for. The kingdom is in shambles. And so, since David can't solve that problem in one day, he, he sees another problem he can solve immediately. Verse 3, and so David, he came to his house, his palace at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house. Remember the ones he had left behind, and what did Absalom do with them? Remember, he slept with them on top of the palace where David had you know, first seen Bathsheba, where you know, he slept with them up there where everybody could see and everyone could know what was going on publicly. And so when David comes home and he, you know, meets with these ladies who were part of his harem, it says that he put them in ward and fed them, but he did not go in unto them. Um, he put the, the word ward, it means a, a place of care, a protected place. Um, he fed them. He took care of all their necessities, all their comforts. Uh, but he did not, they were not part of his royal harem anymore. Um, Absalom's actions violated the Levitical laws uh, concerning sexual purity. I would dare say David had already done that a long time ago by just having a harem, but we don't need to go there just yet. Uh, but the point that we need to bring out is that David wouldn't see it that way and the women wouldn't see it that way. They would not see it that way. One of the things that we can never forget when we're going through First and Second Samuel is that David became king during a time that is not far removed from the period of the judges. That's when he became king. Remember what's the, uh, the way that the time of the judges was described? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know, God's word was for the most part ignored and people kind of made up their own ideas of right and wrong. And so David wasn't immune from that and neither were these ladies. And so they would see themselves as ritually defiled and so would David. So even though, you know, uh, they had been part of his harem in this honored position, they would no longer have that role. Uh, and so instead they lived like those who, uh, those who had chosen not to remarry after their husbands died as, as like widows. Uh, cared for, but in a perpetual state of mourning. For it says here that it says they, they were shut up unto the day of their death living in widowhood. That's how they lived. And you know, this is the consequences of sin. None of this would have ever happened, first off, if David just married one woman and did what God said. Uh, this would have never happened if David hadn't sinned with Bathsheba. This would have never happened if Absalom didn't sin. I mean, these are the consequences of sin. Sin always affects those who are closest to us. And, and I guess my encouragement to you tonight would be, don't forget that when the enemy dangles something shiny in front of you to tempt you. I, I can tell you that as a 20-year-old man, when Satan dangled something shiny in front of me, I didn't think a whole lot about like where this might leave me afterwards. As a 47-year-old man, when Satan dangles something shiny in front of me, a lot of the times when I first thought, one of my first thoughts is, <laughs> yeah, no, I've been there. I know where that leads. Like, no, that's, that's no bueno. You know, I, I don't want to go that route. I don't want to move in that direction because I know the consequences that, that usually come with that. And so, you know, that, that's part of that, you know, wisdom as you grow in, in, in the Lord and you walk with the Lord, and not that I'm wise, but, you know, you do grow and you hopefully learn a few lessons and you go, it looks shiny, but it's poison. Well, once David's taken care of that, he needs to prosecute uh, this, this situation against Sheba. And in his mind, he's prepping for war. Verse 4, then said the king to Amasa, and I remember he made Amasa his general, Amasa was 
Remember, it was like his, David's family is kind of a, a train wreck. You know, you ever, you ever uh, you know, been to like a, like a, a wedding or something and, and you kind of need a scorecard to know who everybody is? You know, that's David's family. You know, uh, there were, immorality was everywhere. It was rampant in David's family. And so Amasa is, is like this, he's like a step, he's, he's, his mother was like a, a, a stepsister of David, but she wasn't even like, uh, you know, she was born out of wedlock in a different situation. So, I mean, it, you have to go back to that chapter and read it all. It's, it, like I said, you need a scorecard. So this guy's kind of family with David, but he's kind of was the back black sheep. And so he joined in Absalom's rebellion and he became Absalom's general, okay? And remember when David was pitching to Judah to bring him back as king, he's like, hey, I'll make Amasa my general and then, hey, then we can all be happy, you know? And so they, they agreed to that. So he's his general now. And so to prosecute this, this prepping for war against Sheba, uh, he summons Amasa in and he tells him, verse 4, assemble me, the men of Judah, within three days and be thou here present. You know, there's no, no time for wasting time. You got three days, muster as many troops from Judah as you can, and then be here because we need to go, you know, take care of this before it gets out of hand. The word there, to present, means to stand in front of a superior. You need to go get him in three days, be back here and present yourself and the army to me so I can know what line of attack we're going to take. And so Amasa, verse 5, went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried. Tarry is probably not the best word because, you know, I think of someone tarrying, I think of someone kind of nonchalantly taking their time. That's not what it means. It just means he took longer than the time he was allotted. It doesn't mean he was wasting time. We'll see what he was doing in a little bit. But it says he took longer than the set time uh, which David had appointed him, which David had ordered him to do. Now, here it doesn't tell us why, but whatever the reason, he wasn't faithful to obey his orders. He should have reported into David instead of letting things linger. He should have at least come back and said, hey, I need more time if you want the troops to do this. But he didn't obey the orders, and so that puts David in a situation where he doesn't know what's going on. Now, David doesn't respond to that problem well either, because instead of dealing with Amasa or sending someone to go get him, he panics and he decides to give the task to his nephew, Abishai. Look at verse 6. And then David said to Abishai, now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us more harm than did Absalom. You take your Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get him in uh, fenced cities. In other words, he gets into a fortified city and he escapes us. Now, the reason David's concerned about more harm than Absalom could do is because Absalom's confusion was based on speed. It was based on confusion and deception, remember? He had planted guys all throughout the nation to just all of a sudden blow a trumpet and go, Absalom is king. Nobody knew why. Did David die? You know, I mean, nobody knew why. And so it was based on confusion and deception. It's why when Absalom took too much time to go out after David that the entire nation didn't rally behind him, why a lot of people came to David's side. Sheba's situation is a little different. He would have an advantage in that his argument had some basis in fact. His, his concept was David only cares about the tribe of Judah. That's not true. But how things had worked out between David and Judah and him coming back, there was some favoritism shown to Judah. 
And so those facts from the meeting at Gilgal would make it easier to turn the hearts of the other tribes against David, and David knows that. And so he says, this guy's going to be worse than my son's rebellion. And so he tells Abishai, take your Lord's servants. In other words, the troops that David had in Jerusalem, his best men. He says, take them. We don't have time to wait three more, uh, any more than three days for Amasa to do his job. If we don't move now on this rebellion, it's going to spread like wildfire. So you take the troops I have here, my personal troops, uh, lest um, he, he gets himself into a fortified city and he escapes us. And that word lest, is, it's hard to translate into English, but it, it means that David fears that Sheba has actually already accomplished this. He actually already thinks he's too late. He thinks he's too late. Now, <laughs> I think it's important to note that David puts Abishai in charge of this smaller strike force and not Joab. I think it's important to at least point that out. David may not like Abishai's violent attitude because a couple times David's been the one to turn to Abishai and, you, you really want to just kill another person? You know, why is that always your answer? You know, you sons of Zariah, you give me headaches every time I'm around you. While he may not like Abishai's violent attitude, at least Abishai has never disobeyed David's orders when David said no. Joab, David would say, don't kill so-and-so, and Joab would be like, yes, sir. You know, I mean, just, you know, he's like, you know, I mean, you know, it's like at some point, you know, at some point you go, go follow him, you know, <laughs> you know, go make sure he doesn't go kill somebody. I just told him not to kill somebody, you know, can you do anything without just killing somebody, you know, Joab. So he, I think it's interesting that he sends Abishai uh, to go lead this because at least Abishai had never disobeyed him uh, when he asked if David wanted him to kill somebody. But what David, I think, fails to recognize is that the reason Abishai had never done that is because Abishai always deferred to Joab. He always deferred to Joab. What's going to stop him from doing that this time with this task? And how on earth did David think it was a good idea to pit Abishai against the man who led Absalom's army in the rebellion? There is no way this can end well. And surprise, it doesn't. Look at verse 7. And they went out after him. Whose men? Joab's men. <laughs> That's not who David said to take. David said, take my men. Take your Lord's servants, which would have been the Cherethites and the Pelophites. Um, those would be David's uh, royal bodyguard. Uh, these were mercenaries that were just, they were his personal bodyguard. And then he says, all the mighty men. Those are those 600 men who had been with David from the very beginning, who, who had been with him when uh, he, he was on the run uh, from Saul. So these are his most loyal men, some of the most elite soldiers in Israel, and his personal guard. He says, take those men. But who's the first people that are listed here that Abishai takes? Joab's men. And Joab's with him. <laughs> Joab's with him. And so he takes them, and, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. Well, look at what happens as they're on their way. Verse 8. And when they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon. Gibeon's a, a city in Benjamin uh, to the north of Jerusalem. When they were there at this great rock, it doesn't tell us what it is, some big, big rock out there, which is in Gibeon. It says, Amasa went before them. Now, the way that that's worded in the Hebrew, it means as they're going north to pursue Sheba, Amasa's coming south from the north. Amasa, what are you, what are you doing up north? Judah, the tribe of Judah, where you're supposed to be mustering troops, is down south. 
Now we understand why it took more than three days. Amasa was up in lands that belonged to Benjamin. And he's traveling south to Jerusalem. Instead of traveling north from Judah with armies he mustered from there. Perhaps Amasa thought uh, or knew he could get more men who were loyal to David if he went to Benjamin. And maybe he hoped that he could do better than even David expected. I don't know. Perhaps he had his own reasons, and he, perhaps he, maybe he wasn't fully loyal to David. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us his motive or his reasons. It just explains that this is why he was late in returning with the mustered troops. So he's coming down from the north, and Joab, and his, well, I say Joab, he's the one who's really in charge, but Abishai's coming up from the south. And so Amasa's got all these troops behind him, and then Abishai's got this small strike force, and they meet up at Gibeon, which is in Benjamin. And when Joab sees Amasa coming from a place he's not supposed to be coming from, he doesn't ask why. He doesn't even care what his motive is. He makes up his mind immediately that Amasa is a traitor. And so verse 8 tells us that Joab's garment that he had put on, it was girded unto him, and upon it was a, a girdle, a sash, a belt, with a sword fastened upon it, his loins, it was in the sheath, And as he went forth, it, the sword, fell out. Now, I own a few swords. I could probably drop them 50 times. I would say that not one of those 50 times is the sword going to fall out of its sheath. This is clearly something that Joab has planned. And so basically the idea is you got Amasa coming down with the troops from the north, and Abishai's coming up from the south. Joab sees him, and he goes out to meet him. With, he's got his, you know, all of his, you know, his battle clothes on, his sword strapped there, and all of a sudden as he's walking, he's like, oops, and the sword falls out of the sheath. And so verse 9 says, and Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother, uh, which means uh, shalom. Is, is everything good, my brother? And as he is reaching out with his right hand, which would have been his sword hand, as he's reaching out with his right hand, it, it meant, says King James, I was thinking, it says King James, and he took him by the beard. That's not what he did. It, the, the phrase here, to take by the beard, it means to touch his face where the beard would be. Um, uh, Bev has done this with all of our kids, you know, she, sometimes she just walk up to them and she just touches their face, you know, and it's a very uh, 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 intimate touch, uh, very, uh, you know, the idea of something you would do just with family, like I wouldn't be walking up to any of you and be like, hey, you know, <laughs> sorry, I mean, I love you, but I'm probably not going to do that, so um, This is something that they would do back then, um, kind of as like a precursor to to the kiss on the cheeks. You know, you put your hand up by their face, and and then you would come alongside, and you kiss them, you know, do the the eastern kiss. And so he's coming like a a family member, because they are, they're they're cousins, you know. Again, kind of weird how they're cousins, but they're cousins of a sort, you know. Um, And so, but as he's doing this, you know, he, he had, you know, the sword fell, and so he's reaching to pick it up with this, the non-sword hand, and he reaches up, and he touches his face, and he says, are you, are you in, you know, are you Salome, my, my, my brother? You know, are, is everything good? And before a mask can even answer, he's like, Ugh. 
and he gets them right in the gut and disembowels them. It says in verse 10, but Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand, clearly not the hand that's touching his face, not his sword hand, that's why he didn't, he didn't suspect anything, the left hand, and so Joab smote him therewith in the fifth rib and sh- shed out his bowels to the ground, and died. he struck him not again as he didn't need to do anything else. I mean, Amasa's a dead man, bleeding out. And so he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bichri. And notice whose name comes first in the pursuit now, Joab and Abishai. It doesn't tell us if Joab was jealous because he wanted the position. Don't, didn't know if he did it just because he wanted the job back. But while either of those could be true, just my take on Joab, I, I think it's as simple as this. He saw Amasa as a threat and he eliminated him. And that's what Joab does, just like he'd done multiple other times. And thus, Joab, in his warped sense of duty and justice, he commits another murder. You know, this, this is why Jesus equated hatred to murder. Um, because so you say, well, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to just, you know, gut somebody and leave them to bleed out on the ground, you know, and then just walk on. But Jesus equates hatred in your heart to murder. He says, because cause when we choose to hate someone, Basically, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm passing final judgment on them. You know, I'm passing final judgment on them. Uh, you cannot be redeemed. You know, there's no way you can redeem yourself. There's no way you can be rescued from who you are, you know. Um, and therefore, at this point, I, I take the position that it is my duty to not let you have another chance. And so, when we choose to hate somebody, we're now withholding our love from them from that point onward. And when you and I do that, we are essentially devaluing or erasing that person's existence in our hearts. We are no longer allowing the fact that God created them with purpose and plans to have any weight in our life. And so this is kind of how Joab operated. Are you a threat to the king? All right, if I think you are, you don't get to live. And we have to be very careful about how we pass final judgment on somebody in our hearts. I have had so many moments when I've had my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm done with that person. <laughs> and the Lord's like, are, are you, are you, aren't you glad I didn't do that with you? And so we cannot have that type of hatred in our heart towards someone where we just completely erase them from, from our existence, uh, erase them from our love, where we will no longer, you know, treat them as someone that God made and someone that He's seeking to redeem. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Love is different than trust. I have to tell this to, you know, married couples who have wounded each other, and, and frequently well, you'll hear this when deep wounds have occurred, is, I don't understand, you know, I'm trying to do better, and they don't trust me. And I'm like, you don't understand why they don't trust you. They say they love me. I think they do, but I wouldn't trust you. <laughs> love is something we have to give. Forgiveness is something we have to always give. Trust is earned. 
Trust is always earned. That is different. So don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying invite a murderer into your house. Don't recommend that. But you still love him. You still pray for him. You can still treat him like Jesus would. Well, Joab and Abishai, they pursue after Sheba. So the assignment from David goes on without interruption. And, and I, I kind of read this and I'm like, how did a fight not break out? Did no one stand up for Amasa? How did everyone just go along with following Joab, you know? Well, the Bible explains for us because after it tells us, they just move on and go on and says, yeah, it wasn't quite that easy. Verse 11, and one of Joab's men stood by him, stood by Joab and said, or stood by him, stood by Amasa, the dead body, and said, he that favors Joab and he that is for David, let him go after Joab. Um, So near where this murder took place, this guy is standing, and it seems like Joab had kind of prepared this soldier for this moment with some specific words. And so he says to the, all the troops that Amasa had mustered and had been following him to this point, he says, whosoever favors Joab, you know, are you willing to follow Joab is what that means? Any of you who are willing to follow Joab and any of you who are for David, well, then let him go after Joab. And so they kind of equate loyalty to David with following Joab's leadership. And since, and his, basically his argument is, since Joab's clearly loyal to David, Anyone who's not going to follow Joab also isn't loyal to David with the implication hanging in the air like this dude who's dead right here. Which implies that anyone who isn't okay with following Joab will suffer Amasa's fate. And so, the troops fell into line. Now, they did do so slowly because the corpse is just bleeding out there while they walk by. And so because time is of the essence, Amasa is unceremoniously moved off the road. Verse 12, and Amasa wallowed in blood. He wasn't still alive. It was just, that's what happens when you're killed that way. Uh, As the blood is just pooling around him in the middle of the highway, it says when the man saw that all the people stood still, when they're coming by, they're not moving, says that he removed Amasa out of the highway and into the field and he cast a cloth. He put a cloth over him uh, when he saw that everyone that came by him stood still. And when he was removed out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. So verse 14, now we get to Joab in charge again. And he, so again, now it's not Joab and Amasa anymore. Who is it just now? It's just Joab. Joab is fully in control again. He went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel and to Beth Maacah and all the Berites, and they were, gathered, they were gathered together and went also after him. So where does Joab head next? Well, he is going, he's just going north, 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 north. Um, Sheba is basically, as he hears that Joab's looking for him, he keeps fleeing north, and Joab follows him all the way basically as north as you can go and still be in Israel. Abel and Beth Maacah are two cities on Israel's northern border with Lebanon. They are way up north near where the tribe of Dan's territory is located. And so this guy goes basically about as far away from David as you can go in Israel, but he was not safe from Joab, verse 15. And they, Joab and his men, they came and besieged him, uh, Sheba, in Abel of Beth Maacah, and they cast up a bank, a siege mound against the city, Um, And it stood in the trench, and all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So 
This guy, he, he takes refuge in a fortified city of Abel uh, that's attached to the other city, Bethmaica, and he casts up a bank. He builds up a siege mound. Now, back then, they didn't like build these you know, big, huge things that you could kind of roll up or whatever. Uh, siege mounds back then were just dirt mounds. So you would get a bunch of guys, or, you know, a bunch of people firing arrows and throwing spears and, you know, and, and while guys are dumping dirt and packing it in and building basically this ramp, this dirt ramp that would go up to the wall, uh, to scale the walls. Um, in fact, if, you, if we ever go back to Israel um, someday, uh, you will see the mounds uh, built by the Romans when they laid siege to Masada, still there. That's how big they were. Um, uh, Masada's way up there. <laughs> and, but you could see the mounds that they constructed to get to the city. And so um, that's what Joab's trying to do. And so he gets it all the way. It says it stood in the trench. Now, you have to understand, most cities knew that that's how you would do warfare, so they created a defense mechanism for that, and it was called the trench. So what you would have is you would have an outer wall that would go up to a certain height, and then you would have like this corridor in between, and then you have a larger wall after that. So the idea was if you, you build up the, 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 the siege mound, you get over the first wall, but then you jump down into a killing zone, you know, where they're, you know, throwing rocks at you or spears or arrows or whatever, and before you, you know, you can't get back up the next wall. So um, he gets it as far as the outer wall, right up to this trench, um, but he knows they can't just go up because then they'll just be in the kill zone. And so it mentions that all the people that were with Joab, they were battering the wall to throw it down. Batter is a, a bad word. Um, it, the word means to undermine. So basically what Joab's plan was is to get this mound up there and then, then to basically undermine the wall, to dig under the wall so that it would collapse and then he could just take the mound right up to the next wall. That's Joab's plan. That's what he's trying to do. So he's sending men up there so they can undermine it, uh, so they can uh, knock down that outer wall, and then they can just rebuild the mound all the way up to the top wall. Well, one woman inside the city figured out what Joab was doing and realized this was not going to go well for them. Joab is a smart commander, and, uh, and he's going he's to get what he's after. And so she offers to parley with Joab. Look at verse 16. Then cried a wise woman out of the city, Hear, hear, say, I pray unto you, unto Joab, come near hither that I may speak with you. And when Joab, he was come near unto her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am he. And then she said unto him, Hear the words of your handmaiden. And, and he answered, I do hear. Uh, I, again, that doesn't translate well to English, but I do hear means I'm listening, but you better talk fast and with some sense or it's back to the siege. I do hear, but not for long. <laughs> and so um, this wise woman is likely someone of influence in the city. Um, the word wise there, uh, it means that she uh, was someone with good judgment, someone who knew what was really going on. And so she starts to suspect something's going on here because Joab is really aggressive about this. And, and uh, one dude, uh, you know, there, there's got to be a bigger reason for why He's here for, you know, he's after one dude and he's doing all this stuff. So, so she thinks, you know, there's some greater um, problem that Joab has with the city. So verse 18, then she spoke saying, they were wont, or it was their habit to speak in old times saying, they shall surely ask counsel in Abel, and so they ended the matter. Um, basically, she says, our city has a reputation, uh, a history of ending people's conflicts. Hear me out, and we can 
end this conflict too. And then she makes three arguments for why Joab shouldn't be attacking them. Look at verse 19. I am one of them that are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Her first argument is, I'm not a traitor. I want what's best for our nation. I'm loyal to David. You should have no quarrel with me. So this is not just what you're doing. Second argument is, she says, you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. In other words, lots of lives are at stake, including my own, who is someone of good influence in our nation. Doing this, not only is it uh, it's wrong, it's not just, it's not going to look good. And then her third argument is, why will you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? She makes a spiritual argument here. Um, you're going to take for yourself land that was given to us by the Lord, and that's wrong. And so she offers these arguments here, and in them we can kind of uh, see that Sheba has kind of spread his propaganda uh, in the city. Uh, basically, David only cares about Judah. He won't be satisfied until all Israel is just the tribe of Judah, and anyone who resists him will be wiped out. He's here to take your land. So she says, what you're doing is wrong, Joab. It's wrong morally. It's wrong politically. It's wrong spiritually. Three very good arguments for Joab to call off the siege, if that's indeed why Joab is here. But that's not why he's here. Verse 20. Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. He doesn't answer her other arguments, but he answers that one, and he goes, you, you wound me, woman. That, that's not what I'm here for. Far be it from me. Never let it be said of me that I'm trying to take land from another tribe. I don't want anybody's land, and I don't want to wipe out any of the tribes. I'm here for one dude that you've been protecting, and I will do anything to get to him because he's a traitor against the king. Verse 21, the matter is not so. You've described this incorrectly. But a man of Mount Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, he has lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Deliver him only, and I'll depart from the city. So he makes an offer to her. I'm not here. I'm not here to do any of the things that you've accused me of. And then he pauses to let the reality sit in of why he's here. And then he makes his offer. You give me this guy, I'll leave. Nobody else has to die. Now, this woman must have been someone of great influence because look at her answer. And the woman said unto Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. You think things are rough in our country with our political leaders. <laughs> Verse 22. Then the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and cast it out to Joab. And he blew a trumpet, and they retired from the city, every man to his tent. And Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. I'm not sure if she addressed representatives from the entire city. I'm not sure if she called the whole city together. But whatever she did, her words either order them or persuade them to agree to Joab's terms. And they lift up this guy's head from off his shoulders and toss it out to Mr. Joab. And everybody's happy, except Sheba. But that's okay, because he's dead. <laughs> he doesn't need to be happy at this point. And so Joab blew a trumpet, and they retired from the city, every man to his tent. And Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. And because the leader of the rebellion's dead, there's no need for a civil war. 
The rebellion's over. And thus David can finally restart his reign. And so verses 23 through 26, they list out his cabinet, which is at this point, slightly different than when he first became king. You can read that list earlier in 2 Samuel. Most of it's the same, but some of it's different. I kind of chuckle when I read verse 23, though. It says, now Joab was over all the host of Israel. Like, you, you got to be thinking, like, when, you know, Joab comes home. I mean, David's, David's probably like, I, I, need, I need Tums. I need Tums now, a lot of it, you know? <laughs> like, like, you know, what? What did he do? What? You know, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for grumpy old man David on his deathbed, David. Like David on his deathbed, he like calls in Solomon and he's like, Solomon, you know, Solomon, make sure these three people don't go to the grave in peace, you know? Make sure you take the vengeance on them that I never could, you know? I mean, I, mean, that, that, I mean, he is. He's kind of grumpy about, you know, these three guys who, who really created problems for him in, during his reign as king. And Joab's one of them. Joab's one of them. Uh, but but he, didn't have the, he didn't have the guts or the, didn't think it was the best thing to do to, to deal with Joab at this point. And so Joab's been fired three times so far, but look who's back in the general spot. He like just keeps coming back like COVID. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and over the Pelethites. This guy, Benaiah, was David's head bodyguard when he first became king. Uh, he still is. And it says that Adoram was over the tribute. This is a new guy. He was in charge of the taxes. Uh, so he's the new tax collector. These were taxes not from Israelites, but from uh, foreign nations who had sworn fealty to David. Um, and then it mentions Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, Ahilud, was the recorder. In other words, the royal historian or record keeper. He's not a change. He was there before. Got this guy named Shiva, the, the new scribe. He is David's personal secretary. And then it says Zadok and Abiathar were the, the priests. And then verse 26 says that Ira, also the gyrite, was a chief ruler about David. Uh, the word chief ruler here, some of your Bibles might say priest, but that's not correct. It just means a royal advisor. Now, what I find interesting between the first cabinet list and this one is that the first list says, and David's sons were his royal advisors. Yeah, David's not going there anymore. This was a role they had had prior to this point, but David apparently didn't trust them uh, with that role at this point. And so, uh, or maybe even it was just that he wanted someone from outside Judah. Uh, a gyrite was a descendant of Manasseh, uh, that's uh, from the half of Manasseh that settled on the other side of Jordan. So maybe he just wanted someone who was outside of, of uh, Judah to be on his cabinet to kind of squelch that lie that he only cared about, uh, the tribe of Judah. Um, be that as it may, try as David might, that divide runs deep, unfortunately, at this point. And while it won't completely crack right away, when it eventually does, the Bible says it's going to take a miracle to unite the two nations as one once again. In fact, it's a miracle that we never see in the Scripture. It's a miracle that we don't see until our lifetime. Not until our present day did we see this miracle come true? For when you look at the nation of Israel, is there a Judah and an Israel, like a northern and a southern, southern kingdom now? Is there a bunch of different tribes now? Nope. 
There's one nation, north and south, united, just as God said it would be in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 22, it says this. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take you one stick and write upon it for Judah, and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions, so the, the two kingdoms. And then take these two sticks that you've put these names on and join them one to another into one stick. Bind them together, and they shall become one in your hand. (laughs) When the children of your people shall speak unto you, saying, will you not show us what you mean by this? Like, what does that mean? The northern kingdom doesn't even exist anymore. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. God says, say unto them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel and his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereon you write shall be in your hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the Gentiles, where they be gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be, their, uh, be king to them all. And there shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And we have seen the fulfillment of that miracle in our lifetime. Isn't that cool? Now, the rest of the prophecy, if you keep reading Ezekiel 37, you go, yeah, but that hasn't happened yet. You're right. It hasn't come to pass yet. That won't happen until Jesus comes back, to which I would say then, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? (laughs) Amen. Let's all stand. Say, Pastor, well, that was a weird chapter. I agree. I agree. I was like, Lord, what, what do I do with this? I do think... I do think it exists as a good challenge to us, though, in regarding our relationships with others. Maybe I might be referencing your marriage, or maybe it's a relationship you have with your kids or your parents, or, or maybe even a brother or sister in Christ. This all started because one group, you know, said, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, And then the other group decided to take it up a notch. And then the next group, they took it up a notch. And then everyone just kept taking it up a notch, a notch, a notch. And and then when things got bad, you know, one panicked and decided to act in the flesh instead of trusting the Lord, doing it his way. And then the other group reacts this way. And and, and those are recipes for disaster when you're divided like that and when you see each other like the enemy. God did not design his own people to look at each other as the enemy. And you know, as Jesus, when he was speaking about Satan, he said, a kingdom divided, a nation divided cannot stand. If, if you're going to view your spouse, you know, your parents, your kids, your brother or sister in Christ as the enemy, you're not going to stand. If you're going to try to solve the situation by panicking and, and trying to one-up each other, you're not going to stand. You're going to crumble. You're going to shatter. It will be in shambles at some point. And so, you know, I guess my encouragement to you from this, these last two chapters where we just see this division in the nation of Israel, my encouragement to you would be this, is that if all it takes is one person to stop up in the ante, you know? All it takes is one person to say, no, I'm not going to keep going. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to view you as the enemy, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to raise the stakes. 
Now, I realize that everything within us screams, that's not fair. To which I would say, neither is the cross. But God did that because he loved us. So, Lord, help us. <laughs> we don't want to be divided in our marriages, our families, you know, our, our church, certainly, Lord. We don't want to have any of those, uh, that divisiveness in our heart. And so, Lord, teach us to be like you, (laughs) like you who looked down and had compassion because there was a need rather than looking at what was fair or just. Uh, Because, Lord, if what was just is we deserved hell, we deserved judgment, we deserved your wrath. And yet, Lord, you showed us mercy. Lord, you died for us on the cross. In your grace, you loaded us with benefits. So, Lord, help us to be those who put a stop, who say, I'm going to do my part whether you do your part or not. I love the Lord, I want to honor him, and I want to love you with his love. God, for every individual this evening who might be saying, yes, I'm making that commitment, God, would you fill them with your spirit? We can't do that on our own. Fill them with your spirit so they can uh, live out the commitment they're making to you right now, and bless every marriage, every family, and certainly, Lord, bless our church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.